Well, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea is the first minor prophet after Daniel. So you find Psalms, go right, <laughs> go through a few major prophets, you'll come to Hosea. You know, as we've progressed through the minor prophets, and, and again, I remind you, they're minor prophets because they're short, not because they're insignificant. You need to lock that in. Major prophets, those big long ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, but then the shorter guys, 12 of them. Hosea is actually the first one in the group in our Bibles, but he was the last prophet to the nation of Israel. He was the very end one right before the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. But as we progress through the minor prophets, I have been asking God to kind of give me the theme. What, what, is the, what is the main message, what is the character of God that is being revealed through this prophecy? Something that I could share with you that would just kind of capture the essence of the prophet. Last week as we looked at Amos... We discovered that God is a God of social justice, that the church notwithstanding, or the nation of Israel notwithstanding, God is not a God who turns a blind eye toward people who are oppressed, people that are poor, people that are not being paid legitimate wages, a court system that does not act on the basis of justice, but caters to the rich and takes the bribe. God does not ignore these things. God's concerned about them. And He's concerned about them in Israel. He says, I, I have seen how you treat the poor and the oppressed and those who are in need. And I, I have seen your affliction and I am taking note. So, God is a God of social justice. We saw in Obadiah, God was a God of second chances. He does give people an opportunity, even after they have failed tremendously, He gives them an opportunity to come back again to the heart of God. But in Hosea, we find that He is the God of everlasting love. I've actually borrowed that from another of the prophets where God Himself says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Some people who comment on Hosea say that he is the John of the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the Apostle John in the New Testament, you know that he was the Apostle of Love. And you read his Gospel and, and you know, for God so loved the world. He's the one who recorded those words of Jesus. Throughout his Gospel, you find the message of love being proclaimed when John gets to be about 90 years old at that age where you can say anything and get away with it, you know, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he's about 90 years old, and he says to them, people like us sitting here this morning, my little children, techniamu, my little children, I'm writing to you. And in that, he, he portrays the God of love. John's heart was greatly tenderized by his relationship with Jesus Christ. And the older he got, the gentler he became, and the more the disciple of love he epitomized. And people have said Hosea in the Old Testament is like John in the New Testament. He is the prophet of God's everlasting love. And so as we come to Hosea, we find that his name actually in Hebrew uh, to make us pronounce it properly, should have an H in it. But we have left it without it in the text of our Bibles because um, it distinguishes him from a king by that name. But his name is actually in Hebrew, the same letters, Hoshea, which also is sometimes translated Yeshua. And you recognize that as Jesus. And his name means salvation. And even in his message, what's interesting about Hosea is he is the last prophet to the northern kingdom before they are wiped out by the Assyrians. His prophecy, some writers pinpoint it to 752 B.C., 
but say 750 to 725 because his prophecy ended about two to three years before the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom, and that was in 722. Remember when you're dealing with B.C., the big numbers go toward the beginning and the little numbers go toward the zero mark. So 752 to 725, Hosea prophesied. He was the last prophet to Israel. His message was one that, Israel, you're going down. There's no coming back for you. And nonetheless, his message was of salvation and the love of God. And I believe that his message rang out in the streets to any individual that would listen because even though the nation was doomed, God knew the name of every single citizen. And anyone who would personally and individually could find the salvation that was freely offered in God, the God Jehovah. One of the interesting things about Hosea is that this book begins very awkwardly for most of us because God says a very strange thing. Look with me in Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea the son of Beeri during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go... Take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of um, Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Rohamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lodohama, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Many people have wondered, how is it that God could say to the prophet, Go marry a prostitute? What is this all about? And people struggle with that concept. Well, there's a couple things that I would like to remind us of. (laughs) One of them, (coughs) one of them is that our Western perspective, modern perspective of of romance and love and falling in love and, and then getting married and all of that kind of thing was not exactly the way it was done in those days in the Middle East. In fact, even today, many marriages are arranged. It could very well be that um, there was already some arrangement in the families. Hosea, as you get into his background a little bit, was apparently a middle class or even upper class citizen. His language, his experiences, his background reflect that of an educated person who is somewhat well established and he's well respected, at least until he started prophesying he was. Later on, they called him demented and a crazy man, but that's we'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, um, it could have been that this was already set up. Gleason Archer points out the fact that um, God in his omniscience knew her character. And it does not necessarily state in this first verse that she was already a prostitute. Because there's some future predictive element in verse 2. Go marry a harlot and have children of harlotry. Uh, That's all kind of like this is what's going to happen. But at any rate, Hosea's message was going to be the everlasting love of God. But his life was going to be a pictorial demonstration of that. And whether or not Gomer was already showing the signs of promiscuity is up for grabs, but the fact is that not long after he married her and began to have children, that her character began to emerge, and 
she started fooling around. She apparently had many lovers. And eventually, as we come to chapter 2, we get this impression, remember, that Hosea's prophecy took place over 25 to 30 years. And as we come to chapter 2, she is out of the home and fooling around constantly. And so in chapter 2, as we read in verse 1, the Scripture says, Say to your brothers, Ami and your sisters, Ruhama, remember, these are his children's names, contend with your mother, contend, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. In other words, in practice, things have fallen apart. Let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will make her like the wilderness. I will make her like a desert land and slay her with thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot who conceived them, has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and oil and drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but not find them. She will say, I'll go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and new wine and oil and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Very interesting passage as you get into chapter 2 and you read it carefully. The implication is this, that Gomer has left the home to chase men. And she's living somewhere else, playing a harlot, playing a prostitute on a daily basis. And somehow or another, Hosea is still providing for her. He's taking care of her. He's somehow or another covering her needs. She's not fully aware of this. This is the estranged and grieving husband who still loves his wife and is trying to somehow protect her, and she's not getting the message, and he says, all right, I'm going to just make it tough. And eventually she comes to a bad end. We find in chapter 3 that the commentators get all confused with chapter 3. In fact, even my Bible says Hosea's second symbolic marriage, like there was a first symbolic, and now these are not symbolic marriages. This is what unfolded in the life of this prophet. And it says in chapter 3, the Lord said, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Now, you may like raisin cakes too, but the problem here is that raisin cakes were an offering to the Baals. It was a kind of uh, food sacrifice. And it implied the, the adultery and the idolatry that was involved. And verse 2 says, So I bought her for myself for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Here's the story. Hosea marries this woman. He has three children with her. And then her wayward character begins to emerge and she starts playing around. And she's dating all the men. And her life looks like it's great for a while. And then it begins to deteriorate. And ultimately, it slides into a pit. I don't know how many of you, and if you have, you don't have to tell me how, but I I don't know how many of you have had close dealings with prostitutes. I've had some, not in an inappropriate capacity. For a while, I worked evenings as a police officer, met a few that way. I was a paramedic for many years, met a few that way. I've 
done street evangelism and witnessing and preached in some of the worst streets in the country in terms of crime and moral filth and degradation. Let me tell you something. Those high-class call girls that show up in the penthouses of the executives when they're in their 20s don't look like that 15 years later. After a life of prostitution and immorality, alcohol and drugs, trying to keep their bodies beautiful with excessive tanning and chemicals, by the time they're 35, they look like they ought to be 75 and not a healthy 75 at that. They're broken. They're diseased. They're abused. They're ruined. They've burnt themselves out with drugs. Their guilt drives them to drink and other forms of escape. They're a mere shadow of their former selves, and if they continue to live, they live an empty, sad life. In Hosea's day, these women that finally were used up and no longer attractive for sexual use were put on the slave market and sold for whatever whoever could get. We assumed their pimp. And Gomer ended up on the slave market. Imagine this. And God says, Hosea, you still love her, don't you? Go buy her back. Go pay the price. Bring her home. Provide for her. This is how I love Israel. Go love Gomer. Do you realize this morning that God in His great love for us has bought us off the slave market of sin, paid the price of the blood of His only Son to bring us home, to clean us up, to make us healthy, to restore our lives, to give us a hope and a future. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? This is the love of God that Hosea projects throughout his message. And by his life, he's a living demonstration of the everlasting love of God. Hosea prophesies in a day when Israel was in her final days. And it was only a few short years after he preached his last sermon, as far as we know, that the Assyrians finally overran the northern kingdom and we really haven't heard from her again. She was lost in the dispersion that many conquering nations practiced of dividing the people throughout the territories so that they would not gain political power again and disperse them so that they would not be a threat. There are several features that stand out in Hosea and his prophecies that he has a grievance about concerning the sin of Israel. And let's look at those beginning in Hosea chapter 4. In Hosea 4... Beginning in verse 1, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, for there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, Along with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the fishes of the sea disappear, yet no one finds fault, and let none offer reproof. That's amazing that this northern kingdom, not only in their materialism and their greed, but violence has proliferated and and culture and kindness has gone away. I was sharing with the the 8 o'clock group this morning. I I don't have virgin ears. I've heard 
foul language all my life. In fact, before I turned my life over to Jesus Christ, I used a bucket full of it. And I worked for a few years, evenings, as a police officer, and squad rooms are not known for their dainty speech. And I worked for many years as a paramedic. I worked in college in a construction crew, a number of construction crews, both commercial and residential. A bunch of guys getting together in North Georgia Clay to build a dam. Their language is not the purest that you would ever want to hear. So it's not that I, I am unaccustomed to, to base language. But I will tell you this. It's only been in the last decade or so that I go to a restaurant with my family and hear it from men and women at the table next to me, out in the open in the restaurant. We have come to a place in our nation where common courtesy and politeness and culture has gone by the by, and there are no longer any taboos. We talk about anything and everything. I'm not trying to be a Victorian prude. I'm just saying there, there used to be something called manners. And that sounds to me like what he's saying here. There's swearing. (laughs) There's profaning. There is a demeaning of common manners and, and a kind of appeal to other gods out in the open. There is deception. The reason we have to have more lawyers and more contracts is everybody's looking for a clever way to gain advantage. Deception is only bad if you get caught in our culture. The goal is to try to word something so that it sounds like one thing, but gives you the option to do another. Then you have to hire two or three lawyers to go with their two or three lawyers to figure out what they really mean and to cover all the bases. Murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Doesn't that sound like the headlines today? Doesn't it sound like our culture and our times? The second problem with Israel is not only had she fallen morally and culturally into this cesspool, but she was pursuing other gods. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. They've played the harlot, departing from God. They offer sacrifices on tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I'll not punish them when they play the harlot or when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with the harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. There's all this going on, all of this worship of false gods. Friends, listen, we do not have to bow down to wooden idols to be idolaters. Because an idol is anything that is more important in your life than God. If He is not first, then you and I are idolaters. You don't have to bow down and offer incense. You just have to be driving and compelled to pursue something as number one in your life, more important than God. What fits that category for you? Jesus really, you know, talked about where the rubber meets the road when He said, if you're going to be My follower... And you don't hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister, your husband and your wife, and even your children. You cannot come after me. Now, he didn't mean that you had to have an angry animosity spirit toward your family. What he meant was, very plainly, I must be first in your life. 
and your wife or your husband or your children or your family or your parents must come after me. I have to be first. God will not share that place with anyone else. And he says to us very plainly, I am your provider. I am your Lord. I am your God. Put your trust and confidence in me. Friends, there's nothing that says that we follow the Lord after we have secured our future. That we serve the Lord after we have built our houses and established our lands. That we follow God after our retirement is fully vested. There's nothing that says that. We are called to follow God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength and to love Him with all of our being and to pursue Him first and foremost. And the pursuit of any other thing above God is idolatry. It may be that He permits you to have other things in your life. There's not a problem with that. But recognize that if God gives you other things, you are not an owner. You are a steward. You are accountable to Him for the management of what He has given you. And the Israelites had totally lost sight of who was number one. The real thing that Hosea adds, though, to the other prophets of Israel, the message that he adds as a focal point, it's kind of like the last straw. I want you to turn over to chapter 5, verse 10, and look at this, because this is really kind of like the end of it. Let me give you a little background before we read the verse. The northern kingdom, remember, has had this time of prosperity under Jeroboam. As a result, things have gone well. And even though the lower classes are suffering, the middle class and the upper class have prospered. They've been able to to build palatial homes. We read that in, in Amos. I mean, they were able to build big houses. They have great... Uh, accoutrements and furnishings and they have all kinds of accessories. Well, they didn't have plasma screen televisions and modern SUVs and all those kind of things. But they had the equivalent for their day and time. The heart of man is not any different. Our toys change shape a little bit, but they're still toys. And, And they had all of this stuff going for them. And then they began to think, gosh, The Assyrians have even more. If we got in bed with the Assyrians, we could have some of what they have. (laughs) It specifically says they envied their horses. Funny how it always comes down to transportation. You know, does oil factor in here anywhere? Nah, of course not. But they said, man, they've got great horses. If we have treaties with the Assyrians, we can, we can have part of their stuff, too. Let's make nice, nice with them. And so, in verse 10 of Hosea chapter 5, we read, The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour my wrath like water. Ephraim, now Ephraim was one of those northern tribes in Israel where Hosea is preaching. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment. Underscore verse 11 in your Bible. If you write in your Bibles, here's here's a verse to underline. Because he was determined to follow man's way, man's command. He was determined to follow human counsel. Let me just stop here and remind us. God says, I will not share my glory with another. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. For my ways are as high above your ways as the heavens are above the earth. Therefore, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't follow what makes sense to you. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways, 
That's just the spiritual ways, right? That's just Bible reading and prayer and, and those nice things, right? Those spiritual things. No, all your ways, your job, your money, your clothes, your house, your investments, your recreation, in all your ways, acknowledge me, make me Lord, and I will direct your paths. Look to me. And I will lead you. Why? Because another proverb puts it this way. There is a way that seems logical to a man. But the end of it is death. And God wants to prevent us from going that path. But notice what they did in verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he's unable to heal you or cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Then if you look in chapter 7, verse 8, just over a few columns, at least in my Bible, chapter 7, verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Any of you make pancakes? You know, you know how you know when it's time to turn the pancakes? You drop this batter in the pan and it's gooey and messy and it kind of works out in a circle more or less. And, and you just kind of let it sit there until you start seeing the little dimples start forming in the top. And you say, okay, now it's time to flip it over. Imagine if somebody just scooped it up and put it on your plate like that without flipping it. Try buttering and syruping that. This cake not turned, this gooey mess. Ephraim is like that. Strangers devour his strength, but he doesn't know it. See, here's the problem with going man's way. It seems so logical and everybody else is doing it, that you don't know what's happening to you. You don't realize that your real strength is being zapped. You're being, you're shriveling up, and you don't know it. Because everybody's on the path. Gray hairs are sprinkled on him, and he doesn't know that either. You're aging prematurely. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought after him for all of this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. Have you ever watched doves? You know, on the trees, on the, that sometimes they land on, you know, my uh, railing around the deck, you know, and they just kind of sit there going, And then they turn and look at each other. And The imagery here is great. I love it. They look like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. The problem was that eventually when you play the game Israel was playing, you get into trouble. You have a national disaster. The economy goes bad. People get all distraught and distressed. And no one ever stops to think, maybe God is trying to get our attention. No one ever thinks that, never crosses their mind. What they say is, let's go join some other nations and get some help. Let's go to human resources. Let's go to the arm of the flesh, to human ideas and wisdom. I'm sure humanism will save the day and pull us out of this mess that we're in. 
I don't think you have to stretch very far to understand the application of Hosea to our times. Is there any question that the church in the United States today is filled with materialism? Is there any question about that? Look at the church around the world. Look at brothers and sisters in Christ today that that are meeting in basement rooms trying to hide out from the government. Look at the ones that are huddled under a tree somewhere in the deserts of Africa. Look at the church today that is suffering martyrdom throughout the world. And then just ask yourself, are, are we kind of lopsided in the United States? Have we become accustomed to our materialism? Is there any question that the church today is often guilty of pursuing other gods? What is our real goal? What is our passion in the church? What consumes us? Is it the glory of God and the, the reputation of His name and the message of the Gospel? Or are we more concerned about how we look and how much we're growing and, and how appealing we are to the public and how well things are going? What drives us as a people? But I think the biggest indictment of Hosea to our time is when we get in trouble. And by the way, the church is in trouble in the United States. There's only one statistic you need to look at to to know that. The birth rate in this country is exceeding the conversion rate by at least a factor of two. Bottom line, more people are being born in this nation than are being born again. All you have to do is the math and project out a few years to know the church is shrinking. We are becoming less influential. We are occupying less of the population. We are making less of an impact. The church is dramatically changing and people without Christ are filling the vacuum. We are not very far behind our European neighbors and England in particular that is down to about 5% of the population that really even understands the name of Jesus. Barna has already pointed out to us across the land that despite what we profess, we don't know the Bible, we don't have a biblical worldview, we don't understand what real Christianity is all about, and practically speaking, in lifestyle, we're no different from our non-believing counterparts. In fact, the divorce rate in the church is about 1% higher. And it's worse among Bible-believing evangelicals. Go figure. So are we in trouble or not? But when we get in trouble, do we turn to God or do we turn to the arm of the flesh? Do we turn to natural means for our help? Do we look, as in verse 11 of chapter 5, Ephraim is oppressed and crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's advice. Now, I'm about to get into deep water again. Every time I say this, I get in trouble. And the last time, which was a while back, the family actually left our church over it. And so, let me say to you again what my, my disclaimer. If what I'm about to say upsets you, before you go do something rash, make an appointment and come see me. Someone came out of the 8 o'clock service and said, man, your phone is going to be ringing off the hook this week. Oh well. I'd rather talk to you than, than let it go misunderstood. But here's the deal. We, we don't realize that our strength is being zapped and, and, and we're getting gray hairs <laughs> because we are going the ways of man because everybody is doing it. But we have failed to connect with the power of Jesus Christ. We lament today that the mighty power of the Holy Spirit seems to be lacking in the church 
We complain that there are not great healings like there used to be. There are not dramatic conversions. We wonder why. But we are not pursuing God first as our solution. I want to tell you something about the way God saves people. And this is really important. I've said it many ways and in other times. I want to say it again this morning. I want you to get this down. We are whole beings. God doesn't save us in peace. He saves us in whole. But redemption is a process. There is a past, there is a present, and there is a future to salvation. It is spoken of in those three tenses. And in our bodies, there are certain elements which are saved in that progressive way. When Adam and Eve sinned and turned away from God, they died that moment spiritually. They, didn't, they died physically later, but that was just the inevitable consequence of the spiritual death that occurred instantaneously. When God goes about taking us off the slave market of sin and redeeming us, here's what happens. We are born again and our spirit comes to life just that fast. Instantly, we are spiritually whole and complete. We come alive to God. His Holy Spirit comes into our being. Our human spirit is reborn in terms of connection with God. The communication channels are open. We are sealed with the Spirit of God for the day of redemption. We belong to Him. We've been transformed by His power. We are born again to a living hope and we have a living relationship with the living God. That is instantaneous. It's a done deal. The second of conversion. Then there are some other things. The redemption of our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotion takes place over time as the Holy Spirit of God invades our being and we give Him control. He changes our thinking. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you can prove the will of God. There has to be a transformation of our thinking. We have to think differently. Why? Because I, I, I quoted a minute ago, my ways are not your ways. Don't lean on your own understanding. You have to be reprogrammed. I don't mean that in a cultic sense. I mean your mind has to be changed to come in conformity with Scripture. That takes a while. You need to have your will transformed. You've got to stop going after all that stuff you want and start following me with all of your heart. And I will heal your emotions. That is the present tense guarantee of the Holy Spirit of God. I have come into your life to make you different people. That's the hope of the Gospel. You don't have to stay stuck in a rut. You can be changed. Now, let me tell you what's future. In the future, there's a resurrection. God is going to take these tired old bones and yank them out of the ground and clothe them with immortal flesh, and we are going to dwell in the presence of God bodily forever. But there is no guarantee of physical healing in this life until the resurrection. God may heal you, He does heal, He will heal but He does not guarantee to every person that they will not have any sickness. The ultimate redemption of the body is a future event. He may heal you of your high blood pressure. You may have to take antihypertensives. He may heal you of your diabetes, but don't go off your insulin unless the Spirit of God tells you to. Don't rely on somebody else telling you to. God may heal you of your cancer. He may heal you of your diverticulitis. I'd love for Him to heal me of mine. But He may or may not do that. that. That is part of that ultimate healing in the resurrection of the body. And it's not guaranteed until the resurrection. Friends, here's the reality. If Jesus Christ tarries, we're all going to die. And one day be raised again. Praise the Lord. 
Now, between the the spiritual rebirth that is instantaneous and the physical resurrection that is in the future, what can we expect now from the power of God in Jesus Christ? Let me tell you. You can expect to be delivered from your addictions. You can expect to be delivered from your addictions. It's a promise. You can be delivered from your emotional distresses and bad behavior. You can be delivered from bad habits. Let me put it more pointedly. If you're an alcoholic, they didn't just discover the the disease of alcoholism in the 20th century. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, alcoholism's a disease. We're going to have to treat it with medicine. We need 12-step groups. You need to stop drinking and going to the bar and go to the groups every night. Friends, drunkenness is not new. Noah was hardly dry when he got off the ark. And his family's getting drunk. That's not new. But Jesus says, if the Son will set you free, you will be free indeed. One of my pet peeves is when somebody comes up to me and says, I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 12 years. God has helped me out, but I go to AA three times a week and and I'm still an alcoholic, but I'm not drinking. Stop it. Stop it. Give glory to God. Give glory to God. Don't tell me you're an alcoholic. We're all sinners. But have you been saved? Have you been redeemed? Jesus Christ liberates you from your bondage. He is the healer. You can count on it. Why do I say that? Listen to me very carefully. You can apply this test to any principle. Is it a sin to have high blood pressure? Yes or no? Is it a sin to be drunk? Alright. Will God deliver you from sin? Yes. Right now, today. He is able. He is able. That's what He does. Jesus Christ in this moment will deliver you from sin. If you have addictions to gambling, if you have addictions to alcohol, if you have addictions to pornography, if you have addictions to whatever, God will deliver you. Don't tell me you've got a gene. We've all got genes. Some of yours are defective. It's not an excuse. All of us in the sin of Adam have defective genes. Bad behavior is a sin. Some of you may be more likely to do one thing or another than others are, but Jesus Christ is the power. You say, I have problems with depression. I don't have trouble with alcohol, but I'm depressed all the time. And I'm depressed because I have a biological disorder and my chemistry is bad in my brain. Listen to me. Do you think depression was just discovered in the last century? What about David when he said, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. You think the people of God only discovered bad days in clinical depression in the last hundred years? You think Freud invented that? Oh, this is a disease. Is your neurochemistry off when you're depressed? Sure it is. It's measurable. Are your brain waves disturbed? Yeah, they are. I've seen it myself on the EEG. They're off. Does that mean it's a disease like high blood pressure? Well, let me ask you this. Is it a sin to withdraw to your room, refuse to go to work, act out with poor behavior, threaten suicide, become melodramatic, hysterical, and out of control? 
Is that behavior? That's behavior, friends. Jesus Christ is able to give you victory over every temptation. I'm not saying you won't have days where you feel bad. I'm not saying you won't have weeks where you feel bad. But you can act right in the strength of Jesus Christ. Don't blame the fact that you spent all your savings on some ridiculous pursuit because you were in a manic phase. Own it up, man up, as they say, to Jesus Christ. And say, I was not relying on the Lord for wisdom. Because God can triumph. We turn to every source in this country for the arm of the flesh to help us. When Jesus Christ says, the Son has come to make you free. The Son has come to make you free. I wish I could say more. I'm way out of time. But I will tell you this. And like I said, every time I say this, somebody gets upset. Usually more than one. But here's the truth. Is it a behavior Is it a behavior? If it's a behavior, Jesus Christ can free you in this life by His power plus nothing. Because that's what He came to do, was to save sinners from their sin. And He will save you. And He can do that. You may have a disease that you suffer with, and God may heal you, or He may give you grace, like Paul's thorn in the flesh. But one day, He will resurrect your body. He has already made your spirit alive. And wherever you're acting out, and wherever you're failing, and wherever you have bad behavior... This moment, Jesus Christ will be your Savior. It will not have to come from a bottle. It won't, and I'm not talking about alcohol now, I'm talking about the pharmacy. It will not have to come from a 12-step group, although discipleship has something to be said for it. It will not have to come from years and years of psychotherapy. If you'll get honest with God... Jesus Christ is your healer, and he will redeem you and set you free. We don't see the power of God today because we're running to the Assyrians. And God's just not real thrilled with that. But if you'll run to him, oh, he loves you. He loves you, and he will change you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your power. Thank you that you alone are God and we can trust you. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.